0: Imposter Syndrome Files. I am so grateful that you're here, and I really hope that you've been enjoying the conversations that you've been listening to and hopefully finding some tips, some next steps that you can take if you struggle with similar feelings of self-doubt, which obviously, as you're hearing, are fairly universal. This is something that we all go through from time to time. When I started this podcast, my goal was really to try to normalize the experience to let everybody know that you are not alone, that there's a name for what you're feeling, and that there are steps that we can be taking to manage it more effectively. What I have found over the course of these conversations has been fascinating. I have had an absolutely powerful and different conversation with every single person who I have interviewed. I worried at one point that there may not be enough to talk about, How much is there to say about imposter syndrome? Are the stories going to start to get repetitive? That has absolutely not been the case. Everyone brings a fascinating new perspective to this conversation. I have learned something from every discussion that we've had. I hope you have too. I want to make a note that many of these recordings are being done during the social distancing that's happening with coronavirus. I am doing my best to protect the sound quality, but, We are all in homes that have pets, kids, all kinds of background noise going on. For me, it's much more important to share with you a very natural conversation between two people than it is to share a perfectly polished recording. So I hope that you will bear with us if there are moments where the sound is not perfect. Uh, Really, my goal is to share stories not to provide perfectly scripted, perfectly polished audio. So apologies for any imperfections that may be coming through in the recordings, but I'm hoping that you're getting the essence of the message regardless. So thank you again for being here. I wish you all the best and hope that you will consider sharing your own story one day. Thanks again. excited to have you here today. Why don't we start by having you share a little bit about yourself?
1: Great. I'm really happy to be speaking with you. Um, so I uh, currently work as an academic advisor, at Macaulay Honors College at CUNY, which is the City University of New York uh, at Queens College, um, where I advise students on their schedules and grad school and such. Um, Not what I was trained in, uh, not (laughs) remotely. I have a PhD in Irish history um, and a master's degree in Irish politics, which, as you can imagine, is super useful. And (laughs) uh, so it was sort of a lengthy journey for me to get here um, with a lot of imposter syndrome along the way, shall we say, helped me uh, on this this journey.
0: (laughs) Well, that's probably a good segue for us to... To jump into this question of what imposter syndrome means to you. How has it shown up in your life or in your career?
1: Uh, To me, imposter syndrome is almost like gaslighting myself Mm -hmm. Uh, In the in the sense that I have been able to convince myself or just without even working to believe that I don't know the things that I actually know I'm not an expert on the things that I'm actually an expert on. um, And the way that that has impacted my career choices uh, has actually been really profound.
0: I love that you used the term gaslighting. That's such a great way of describing it. Are you comfortable sharing a bit more about The profound impact that you're talking about? Like, in what ways has it affected your career?
1: Um, Well, you know, when I went to grad school, um, both in Belfast, where I did my master's degree, and then back in the United States, where I did my PhD, I definitely thought that I was going to have a career uh, writing books about Ireland, um, possibly being a sort of public intellectual on things related to Ireland. Um, and then when I got into academia, um, I pretty quickly fell into this idea that I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not as smart as other people. And when, when I was finishing my PhD, I was so deep into that feeling. And also it was in the midst of the recession, uh, the great recession, um, that I didn't even apply for academic jobs. That's how bad it was for me, that I just thought, you know, there's not a lot of jobs. Everyone else is smarter than I am. Everyone knows more than me. And I didn't even try. Do you
0: have a sense as to where that might have come from? Was it something about the environment that you were in? Like where? Where do you think that? feeling of not being as smart as other people came from?
1: I think it has a number of origins. You know, academia is sort of notorious for instilling imposter syndrome in uh, PhD students and even I know like mid-career or late-career academics who still feel it to an extent. You know, it's a common topic of conversation and I think possibly more so amongst women Uh, academics who struggle to be taken seriously anyway. um, I worked with a number of uh, professors who were brilliant, I mean, don't misunderstand me, these were brilliant men um, who were very traditional in their approach to mentoring uh, young scholars And I think that that approach is, number one, outdated. Number two, works on a specific type of traditionally educated white male. Uh, And it doesn't, it didn't work for me. It made me feel terrible about myself uh, to be put through what is essentially what I always called academic hazing or intellectual hazing, Um, just for years, literally years. Wow, do you
0: have regrets about not having moved forward in that area that you spent so much time studying? Oh yes
1: <laughs> yes um, you know recently I've just started uh, I started a blog about Irish politics um, and I've been doing some writing and in the course of that, I've looked back at some of my work from when I was an in academia and a couple of the articles that I published. And I thought to myself, you know, I was wrong about myself. Like this work is good. I'm a smart person. Um, And I really wish I would had been able to see that 10 years ago. Hmm.
0: And so how, how did you get to where you are now? Um,
1: can you be a little more specific?
0: Oh, I'm sorry, because you mentioned that you're now doing academic advising, so you're still in higher ed right uh, um but how do, how did you end up in the position that you're in now? It seems like an interesting journey from Irish politics <laughs> to where you where you are now um
1: you know. I kind of just fell backwards into it, I'll be honest with you. I was teaching high school, I was teaching history at a couple of different private high schools, um, which was, let's just say, not for me. I'm not cut out for that kind of work for a number of reasons, number one uh, being that uh, there's no... Call for anyone to learn the types of history that I'm interested in, in high school. You know, I my dissertation was on sexual assault, and I was a little ahead of the curve on that particular theme, which is another one of my regrets. So, you know, I people would be interested in that now, and they weren't necessarily 10 years ago. Um, you know, uh, and Ireland, you know, you don't teach Irish history to high school students, you teach US history, you teach world history, which is very frequently um eurocentric, but with the, uh, you know, real push to move away from that, there's even less of an interest in Ireland than there would have been probably 20 years ago. And I understand the reasons for that. It's just that, you know, it doesn't make my intellectual interests very pertinent, uh, to the field. So, uh, I moved away from that and I spent some time without a job trying to, you know, be a commentator on Irish politics, posting on Twitter all the time, I, I did co-write a piece that was in the Washington Post, which is sort of my, you know, biggest triumph on that front. But, you know, we need, in the end, we needed money. And so I I saw this job posting and I thought, you know what, I can do that job. Like, I've applied to grad school. I've been through college. I've worked with students. Um, you know, I could advise them. Um, and, uh, you know, I had the help of an excellent career counselor in you know, putting together a resume that turned my academic CV into an actual resume because I didn't know how to do that. I really didn't know how to do that. Um, So, and then I, I'm a pretty good talker most of the time. So I, I, you know, interviewed for it and I got the job, Um, but it really was very much an accident.
0: How do you feel about where you are now, given that, you know, you've obviously gone through this path and that's led you to where you are today, are you feeling good about it
1: now? I have very mixed feelings. You know, the thing about working at a one of the branches of City University of New York is that. It's not like working at Harvard or teaching at Horace Mann, which is where my last teaching job was, where almost all of the kids are very privileged. You know, you have a lot of, you have a really interesting mix of students. And I feel like I can really help a lot of these students whose parents maybe didn't go to college and they uh, aren't as familiar with the system as uh, the students uh, I taught who were very privileged, right? Um, and so that's really actually very rewarding, and I really enjoy the students. Um, and my colleagues are, happen to be really nice, and I'm, I'm lucky on that front. At the same time, I'd be lying if I said I didn't frequently think of myself as a failure because I do love this thing that I spent years and years. You know, I finished my PhD when I was 31, which is actually relatively young uh, First you know, certain fields, but I went straight through, um, and then just didn't do anything with it. And I really like miss it. I just, I miss, like I would talk about Ireland all day for free, you mm-hmm. know, and I just miss that, um, really viscerally actually.
0: So what's interesting to me is that theme of Regret, right? So, and that was one of the challenges of imposter syndrome is that you were unfortunately in this environment that caused you to doubt yourself. And you talked about the gaslighting, which I think is such powerful imagery, and it took you off the track Mm -hmm. that you clearly invested a lot of time in, right? And now based on how you're describing your current role, it certainly sounds like a fit. It certainly sounds like you have great skills and capabilities in that area, but I'm definitely sensing that there's this, i you know, when you're saying I miss it, right. There's some regret. Do you see anything changing in the future that will bring you closer to where you've, where you were?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. I, I would love that. You know, I do still write my blog Uh, I try to, you know, because I am working full-time now, so I don't have as much time as I did when I was not working. Um, So I'm hoping, you know, people keep telling me it takes a while to get a following. I've participated in workshops like the Op-Ed Project um, that uh, aim to help uh, underrepresented voices uh, be heard. Um, So I really would love that. I I just don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's too late for me. Um, you know, I got married last summer and, you know, now there's like, you know, issues of children potentially mm-hmm. in the future. And, you know, I'm not a young person, you know, in terms of that anymore. So, um, and I, I don't know that it would be possible for me to uh, hit the reset button anymore. In terms of being an academic, that's that's over. You know, academia, they call it, um, your PhD goes cold. Your dissertation goes cold. If you don't get a job in usually three to four years after you're done with your PhD, you are, it's not going to happen for you. And then that's just a reality of the field that I think is, personally, I think it's pretty messed up. Um, you know, <laughs> it's not like my brain has withered on the vine since I finished <laughs> my PhD in 2013, but um, you know, that's the way academia operates. Do you
0: see opportunities to
1: become more at peace with your decision? Um, well, I hope the money I, am uh, paying my therapist to discuss this on a weekly basis <laughs> <laughs> leads to that opportunity. Um, You know, I I joke about it, but uh, no, it is actually true. I I do see a a psychologist, you know, to talk about this very issue. Um, Is that painful an issue for me Um, psychologically? um, It does really impact my life, and um, so I hope so. I don't know what that looks like right now. Um, People keep telling me things like, "You're not defined by your job," and certainly that's true, um, but I think it's less true for people who were engaged in something that passionately. You know, I, I tell my students now when they ask, should I go get a PhD? My advice is usually something to the effect of only if you can't see yourself being happy doing anything else. Hmm. And that's the way I felt at the time. That this is what I needed to be doing. That I love this thing and I couldn't be happy doing anything else. And and. Uh, I've been trying to be happy doing other things for quite a while now and I still feel this regret. So I don't know, you know, some, some way I'll have to get there because you can't spend your whole life, you know, which I hope has many decades left in it, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, ruminating on the, on this. Um, But like I said, you know, I just don't have a clear picture of what that's going to look like for me.
0: I really appreciate your honesty in sharing that because I'm sure that's not easy to talk about. And I especially love that you talked about seeing a psychologist because that is one of the reasons why I started this podcast is to have conversations about things that we often don't feel comfortable sharing or that we think are somehow shameful when in actuality... They are not. They're you know they're very mm-hmm. normal, very universal challenges that we all face, and resources that we should all be proud to be taking advantage of. So I give you a lot of credit for for seeking that help and for letting us know that you're doing that. And hopefully, you'll inspire some others who may be on the fence about seeking out that kind of help. Uh, what what are you? Because you're still actively on the journey, right? Like you ha- you haven't come to which hopefully we're we're not ever at the end of our journeys until mm-hmm. the final moment, right? But you know, since since the way you're describing it is that you're you're actively figuring this out right now. Like, what are what have you learned about yourself along the way?
1: Uh, I've learned uh, one the biggest thing I think I've learned is. To ask people for help. You know, when I finished my PhD and didn't have a job and had mountains of student loan debt, uh, which I still have, um, I didn't know how to ask people for help looking for work. Um, I felt really ashamed of having to ask people for help. And uh, it took me a really long time to learn how to do it and not have just the act of doing that make me feel badly about myself. Um, so I think uh that is probably the number one thing that I have uh you know personally the number one way I've personally grown from uh this experience um you know I I've, I've asked career counselors for help and every single one of my friends and frankly people I don't even like that much I had to you know swallow my pride and ask them for a job lead or, um, you know, someone who is an expert on, you know, social media marketing. I asked for help. I asked a cousin for help who I didn't have a great relationship with before putting together a website and he helped me do it. And I actually, my relationship with him is a lot better. So, uh, I'd say I I got that out of it too. Um, and I've also, uh, learned that, People are a lot kinder than I may have thought, Um, you know, through through asking them for help. I thought people were really going to judge me and think poorly of me and think I was stupid for asking for help, looking for jobs and putting together resumes. And people have been exceptionally kind. I would say 99% of the time people were exceptionally kind. And that felt really good.
0: I love both of those things that you're talking about. Asking for help is a tough one for so many. And it is a really powerful strategy for combating imposter syndrome because we just put so much pressure on ourselves. We... Have these beliefs that we need to know everything, do everything, and if we ask for help, that that's somehow weak or cheating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond that, cool. there's also the, you know, the real fear that people are going to judge us, or that people are going to reject us, or that you know something bad is going to happen if we reach out and ask for help. And so I love what you're describing too about this idea of. Kindness, and that has been my experience, too, that way more often than not, people want to be helpful, they want to support you, and they appreciate your vulnerability and willingness to ask for help, and when we ask for help, we give permission to other people mm-hmm. to be vulnerable and ask for help too, mm-hmm. and I think that's a really important part of you know this shared experience that we're we all have
1: I agree, yeah.
0: So, this has been a really powerful story. Again, that I'm so grateful that you shared with us today. What motivated you to want to tell your story today?
1: Um, I think if anyone can learn from the what I consider to be the bad choices I made, um, you know, for what seemed like very real psychological reasons, people can learn from that and think, you know. Maybe what I'm thinking and feeling right now is not real. It's just the like, voice in my head uh, talking to me, but you know your, your thoughts and feelings are not necessarily reality. Um, you know, I think is important to know. And there, I, there are some types of therapy like cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, acceptance and commitment therapy that will like teach you that and like tell you to give the voice in your head a name um, and then Ooh. tell it to shut up. <laughs> whenever it's telling you you're not good enough or, you know, uh, you're not smart enough. Um, you know, I think that's a, first of all, I think it's a really wonderful strategy. And I think, but I also think that if people can hear my story, uh, women in particular, because I just, you know, I studied, spent a lot of time studying gender and I, and I know that, uh, women, uh, and, uh, various, um, you know, underrepresented people are more susceptible to this, um, you know, if they can hear my story and think, you know, that sounds a lot like me, I'm going to make a different choice than the one she made. Um, I'm, I'd am i be thrilled if people could hear my story and, and make a better choice for themselves. Uh,
0: that's so powerful. And I, again, I'm so grateful to you for your willingness to share that with us. And I love what you're describing to you about managing that inner critic, because it's true that we accept at face value so many of the things that that voice tells us. And so any, anything we do to create distance between ourselves and that voice will allow us to raise our awareness mm-hmm. that it's there because sometimes it's just such an unconscious process that we're not even realizing that it's speaking to us and we're listening, right? <laughs> so, so the idea of naming it, the idea of pushing back on it, anything that we can do to acknowledge its presence and try to change the story is mm. so important.
1: Yeah, I really agree with that.
0: So thank you again, Laura. This has been so powerful. And I, 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 again, I really appreciate what you've shared with us. And I'm sure so many others will appreciate it as well.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm glad uh, to have been able to tell this story.
0: Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share it with other women who can benefit from this conversation. Before we go, I want to share some additional resources with you. If you struggle with, this, with imposter syndrome and you want to manage it more effectively, I invite you to join my free imposter syndrome online challenge. Every day for seven days, you'll get an email with self-reflection questions and exercises to help you better understand your own experience with imposter syndrome and how to navigate it more effectively. To join the free challenge, visit success.com slash imposter dash syndrome dash challenge. When you sign up, you'll immediately receive your first message. Also, if you're interested in joining a community of women who engage in candid conversations that generally aren't happening elsewhere, I invite you to join my leading women discussion group. On the first and third Thursday of every month at 12 p.m. Eastern, we meet virtually over Zoom to talk about questions or challenges related to career management, leadership development, and any other relevant topics such as imposter syndrome and confidence. It's always a great discussion with a great group of women. If you want to check it out, you're welcome to be my guest on a future call. Just reach out to me at kim at executivecareersuccess.com and I will share the call details with you. And if you wanna join my newsletter to receive tips, insights, and updates, text leadingwomen, all one word, to 66866. Finally, consider telling us your story. Contact me to learn more about how you can be a guest on the Imposter Syndrome Files. Thanks again, and have a wonderful day.